session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or to suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Those of you who listened last week, you might be surprised to hear me doing a show today. I thought we would not be doing a show because today's Veterans Day and National Holiday here in the United States. Um, But in fact, we did live programming today, so here I am and happy to be with you tonight uh, to talk about the book of the week to begin the show. But before I do that, I wanted to announce the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week on Monday's show, and it is The Disordered Mind by Eric R. Kandel. The Disordered Mind, What Unusual Brains Tell Us About Ourselves. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next Monday. And again, as always, please send me your book recommendations and requests. Uh, Many people have already done so, and it's helped me in coming up with new books to add to the list. So thank you for that. All right. To talk about the book now for this past week, it was Before You Know It by John Barg, B-A-R-G-H. I don't know how to say that. As I said, it kind of looks like Barg, a Persian word for light. Um, but the book is called Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. And as the title suggests, this book is all about the unconscious. And Dr. Barg, I guess that's how I'm going to just say it, um, has done decades of research on the unconscious. And this book, he shares lots of studies. Uh, There's some research he shares he's done himself, but lots of research by other Uh, psychologists and scientists that really help us better understand the unconscious and how much our unconscious plays a role in what we think, do, and feel, and how much, because it is unconscious, we are unaware of this. It really is quite fascinating. And to begin with something he said early in the book that I thought was very interesting and important was this idea that when we think of the unconscious, usually it has this negative connotation of something dark or bad or kind of like a base part of being a human that isn't good. And a lot of this could be due to the legacy of Freud, who made huge contributions and even just the concept of there being an unconscious. Um, But a lot of what he talked about was very dark about the unconscious, that we have these unfulfilled desires and wants and needs and negative feelings and rage and hate or other negative things that one might think of in a bad light. And so this gave a reputation of the unconscious as this bad place of ourselves, whatever that might be. And of course, there might be a lot of negative things in the unconscious, but overall, it definitely is not a negative thing overall, and it can be quite positive. And really, we actually need our unconscious to survive. It is part of what keeps us alive. And if we have to consciously think of 
and keep track of and be aware of everything that we have in our minds, we wouldn't really be able to function at all. So we need the unconscious. And so we have to first change the light we put on the unconscious as this negative and dark thing and try to better understand it, which is what recent scientists and psychologists have been trying to do. And something he mentions at the end of the book that I also think is important is, just as the title suggests the unconscious reasons we do what we do, to really understand ourselves better and to understand yourself as an individual, you have to accept and have some level of humility that you usually don't know, or very often you don't know all the reasons why you are doing what you are doing. You might think you know, you might think you're very much aware and that what you're doing is only because of some conscious thought on your behalf or that you are aware of everything that's affecting you or influencing you in a moment or that you wouldn't be influenced by certain things. But this would be missing the reality, which is that we are all influenced by so many things at any given moment. And as he talks about, he talks about three different time zones of our unconscious, the past, the present and the future. But we're all influenced by so many things at any given moment that it would really be hubris or pride to just think that we would know everything that's going on. And I have complete control over everything I'm doing, and I know exactly why I'm doing everything I'm doing. This is not the case at all. And as he mentions, actually having this awareness, acknowledging that you don't have complete free will even, complete control over everything you're doing or awareness of what you're doing or conscious control, it actually paradoxically or ironically increase the amount of free will that you have, the amount of control that you have on yourself. When you understand the influences or are open to trying to understand the influences that might affect you, you are much better able to have control or even compensate or be aware of how they might affect you. He briefly gives this example of a ship captain who is going to steer the ship, of course, and we can call that the conscious control, but is aware of how the winds and the waves and the tides are all going to affect the way that the ship goes. And so a captain who thinks, I know I have complete control over the ship and doesn't take those things into account is actually much more likely to crash upon the rocks and to actually not do well. So when we take into account that things we might not be aware of or things we would like to think wouldn't affect us, in fact, will, uh, we actually can be more in control of what we do and understanding why we do what we do. And so he talks about, as I mentioned, these three different time zones, as he puts it, of our unconscious. And again, we need the unconscious to survive. And it's actually what leads to us surviving in a lot of situations. And it's hard to define exactly what the unconscious is. But to give you an example, if you are about to walk on a street, and he, I think he shared this story himself, and a car pulls up, you might step back away from the curb before you even realize what's going on consciously. So in a way, your unconscious will kick in and protect you actually before your conscious mind knows what happened. Or maybe you even had this experience where you startle from some loud noise and only afterwards you realize what it was. But your unconscious responds even before you are conscious of something. So literally, our conscious minds help us survive in a way every day, but especially in those types of situations. But to share a few examples uh, of how these unconscious effects happen, he does share that even infants a few months old, will prefer faces of people that look more like them 
than people that don't, which might be a little bit discouraging when we think about things like racism and wanting people to be more inclusive and not be racist and have those attitudes. But we see that this is the reality. And it makes sense that in our brain, which evolved for a time before now, it made sense for us to prefer people like us because that meant protection, safety, or that we'd be more likely to favor them, whether it was in war or in sharing resources, because that's what we needed to survive. But he does share that this doesn't mean we always have to have this preference or that it's always there. But there does seem to be some us versus them machinery in the brain and in the unconscious that we automatically can be drawn towards certain people or not feel so safe around others. That is something, again, that can be overridden over time. But we have this us versus them in our brains. Um, another interesting uh, study or phenomenon that he talks about is stereotype threat. Now, this in a way shows the influence of culture, another part of our unconscious past, or the ways that media and things that we hear stereotypes can affect us. So stereotype threat is essentially that when we are primed to think about some aspect of our identity, we might actually behave in ways that are in line with the stereotypes that go along with that part of our identity. So an example is they've done studies on Asian American girls and doing math tests. Now, the stereotypes that we have here in the United States, especially, is that, for example, Asians are good at math. But there's also a stereotype that girls are not as good as boys are in math. They're not as good at math than boys are. So both of those stereotypes exist. So for an Asian American girl, on one hand, their Asian identity says they should be good at math, and their female identity would tell them the stereotype is they're not good at math. And so they've done studies that remarkably show that just by making them think about their identity, whether they think about the female or the Asian part, let's say before they do the math test, they have to check their ethnicity or are asked a question about Asian food or have to check if they're male or female, and then they take the test. So there isn't an emphasis of, by the way, Asians are better at math or females are not as good at math or that's what people think. It's just a way of making them think about this part of their identity. What they find remarkably is that when they were told to think of their Asian identity, those participants did better on the math test than did those who were told to think of their female identity or who are primed to think of their female identity, which is amazing that we can actually perform better or worse based on what part of our identity might be triggered because of these stereotypes. And it shows that we can be affected by things that we really would not think would have any effect. And one thing that's really interesting about a lot of the studies he shared is that when they ask people, if they ask people after the fact, if something affected, let's say, the way they performed or what they felt or what they said or did, almost always the people are unaware of the influence of these unconscious factors. They have to happen out of our awareness and we usually are not aware of them. Again, if we become informed and think more deeply and openly about these things, we can become more aware. But it's amazing that we tend not to have any awareness of this effect or the effects of, of the unconscious. Another interesting study that I'd seen talked about in other books was having people play a game called Cyberball, which is basically they play a computer game where they're sitting at a screen and they think there's two other participants who are actual people. It turns out 
It's part of the computer program. But they think there's two other people who are playing this game where on the computer you throw a ball to each other. And the way it starts is that everyone they play when they throw the ball to each person and they kind of take turns and everyone gets the ball about the same amount of time. But then there's two conditions. In one condition, some people stop getting the ball thrown to them. So imagine they see the other two people on the screen throwing the ball back and forth. And this gives a feeling of rejection, of social coldness. But in the other condition, they keep throwing the ball to you in a normal way, uh, the way it was before. So you feel included. And what they found is that after the test, they've done a lot of different studies on this, but uh, they, an interesting set of studies was shared in this book. One was that they found that when they asked people after the test to guess or estimate the temperature of the room they were in, those who were excluded reported that it was colder, or they estimated that the room was colder than those who were included. Again, having no awareness that this had any effect, but it shows that there's actually a feeling of social warmth or social coldness. And even that when we say that someone is emotionally cold, or we say that someone is very warm and loving, there actually is something physiological about this. It's not just some kind of metaphor or analogy that we have for warmth and coldness. It actually has an effect. And they've even found that there's parts of the brain that gets active when we are dealing with either physical coldness or emotional coldness, which is really amazing. So again, people who were excluded, who in a way felt rejected, actually thought the room was colder. Now take this a step further, they even... Uh, took the temperature of the participants and they found that those were excluded actually their body temperature was colder than those who were included in the game that they played it actually even affect physically their own um, body temperature which is amazing uh, that it can have that kind of effect again all out of our awareness so there are so many things that can affect how we think and feel even with this warmth and coldness they've done studies where they've had people either hold a cup of warm coffee or iced coffee and they found that when they held the warm coffee they were actually friendlier or more polite and helpful or less rude than if they were given the cold coffee so it's amazing that so many little things things that we'd have no, think would have no effect can actually affect us and actually since i mentioned coffee and i was talking about trying to have some self-awareness i can share something personal about myself which is something I've realized is that I do like to have coffee in the morning and definitely helps me get my day started and maybe a little bit more than I'd like because something I've become aware of is that when I'm thinking about something that maybe, uh, maybe I'm sensitive about or a relational issue that has some intense emotions tied to it, if I'm thinking about it in the morning before I've had my coffee, I've recognized that sometimes I have a more negative slant about thinking about those things. I'll think about them in a more negative way or might not feel as good about them or feel more sensitive about them. And then I'll have my coffee and I'll feel a little bit differently or not as negatively, which leads me to realize that it's not just about the things I'm thinking about. It's the fact that because I haven't had my coffee, I'm in a little bit of more grumpy mood or in a down mood. And so things seem a little bit less good or negative to me and because of that i've realized two things one is that i'm addicted to coffee and i maybe should think about that and drink less or i'm definitely dependent on it in a way that i don't think is good uh, something for me to think about on its own but also 
that it's probably a good idea for me not to think about uh, these types of emotionally intense things before I've had my coffee because I might start them, uh, start by looking at them in this negative way, have this more negative view about things or be more sensitive to things or get more upset about things that maybe I wouldn't get upset about afterwards. So being aware of our own um, moods or how our mood can be affected by so many things that our mood can affect what we think and feel about things can be very important to keep in mind. So that's one way that I've made that realization myself. But you know, there's so much research in this book that I want to talk about it a bit more. So after the break, I'll continue talking about the book Before You Know It by Jonathan Barr. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delac. We will be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, I was talking about the book Before You Know It by John Barg. Barg, Barge. I'm really sorry. I'm butchering the name and saying it differently every time. Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. And uh, as I mentioned in the first segment, it's important to recognize that we have a conscious and unconscious. And sometimes when people think about their unconscious or they think about who am I, and really the truth is both of them make up who you are. The unconscious and the conscious are part of you. And it's not that one part of him is bad and one part is good. It's that all both parts are needed. And actually, like most, thi- most things, the better we can integrate these two parts of ourselves, the better off we are. Um, but sharing some more of the interesting research that he talks about in this book, maybe you've noticed or you've thought that husbands and wives look a lot alike, especially over the years. And so they've done some research on this, and it's really quite incredible. Um, First, to begin with, there is this tendency we have to mimic each other or imitate each other. And and I'll get to the husbands and wives in a bit, but I'll talk a bit about this mimicking and how mimicking or doing things together can make us feel more close to one another. You've maybe even seen this is why, or you maybe have realized for example, military uh, armies or the military will do lots of things in sync, you know, marching and stepping and different types of hand movements and things. And this goes back thousands of years. Even in the Roman times, they would have a military, though, travel with the army to make sure they were stepping at the same time. And this might seem a little bit crazy to spend resources in this way, but we see that actually it makes a big difference when people do things together or in unison, in unifying people, feeling connected and feeling like you like one another more. Take it on a smaller scale. What we see is that people mimic each other when they're communicating and if they're liking each other. This could be in a romantic sense, but even in a friendly sense as well. When you like each other or you're into the conversation, let's say, with one another, you'll unconsciously mimic each other. And if you pay attention to this, let's say if you're looking at people, you might notice it. I've observed it myself. For example, you're talking with someone and you're both into the conversation and then you cross your arms and a second or two later, that person crosses their arms too. And in a way, we're staying saying, uh, staying in sync with one another and this creates a sense of connection and good feeling with the other person. And so they've done research to show how this effect can uh, cause us to like or dislike or to like someone more. They've had people be in a 
room with someone else and they didn't know that that other person was part of the experiment, but that let's say they thought they were looking at paintings or looking at something unrelated to looking at one another. And so, for some people, the other participant who was part of the, the study would mimic what they were doing. So if they would cross their legs, they would cross their legs. If they would move in a certain way, they would do it. And again, not an exaggerated way. The person would not notice. And in the other situation, they wouldn't do that. And when they asked people afterwards how much they liked the person, they found that they liked the person more when they mimicked what they did. And again, as I mentioned in the previous segment, if they ask them why they liked this person, they never said it was because, oh, when I crossed my arms, she crossed her arms. And when I scratched my head, she scratched her head. It's something that we're unconscious of, we're unaware of, but it makes us actually like the other person more. Now, coming back to husbands and wives, hopefully they like each other. If not, they're in deep trouble. But because they like each other and because they're going to be communicating a lot, um, what has been found is that what might be happening is that because they're constantly together and because we mimic each other and especially mimic people we like, what might be happening is this from the book is as a result, over the decades, you will tend to use the same facial mus muscles in the same ways, sharing each other's emotions and expressions so that eventually over many years, you will come to develop the same muscle and line patterns on your face which I thought is kind of very interesting and neat and almost romantic in a way too, that you start to look alike because you're mimicking each other's facial expressions, let's say when you're talking to each other, so the same lines and patterns will develop in your face over time. And um, there's actually a song I like that talks about the lines on your face. It's called The Story by, I think it's Brandy Carlisle. It's a very nice song. But anyway... Um, they did a study to see if this was the case. And actually what they did was they showed couples or pictures of couples, but not together. And so they'd show people pictures of people and say, do these two people look alike or rate how alike they look? And so they would sometimes show a person with their husband or wife and sometimes with a stranger. And what they found was, in fact, people did look more like their spouses than they did like other people. But even more interestingly, it was only when they were looking at the pictures after their couple had been married for 25 years, that they looked more alike. So it wasn't that they looked alike when they got married, which maybe there's some of that too, although that's not what they found in this study because we tend to like people like us um, in different ways. Or even another study or studies that were talked about in this book is that, for example, people named Dennis, whose name starts with a D, let's say, are more likely to become dentists or someone named Larry is more likely to become a lawyer than by chance, which is quite remarkable. But this study found that people looked more alike over time. So they looked more like after 25 years of marriage, not when they got married, which gives credence to this idea that over time, because of looking at each other, mimicking each other, we might start to look more alike each other, which I thought was pretty cool, amazing, and again, a little bit romantic and sweet to me as well. Um, but as I just mentioned, we see that our names in kind of a way that might seem very self-centered, but we are affected by our names. And people, for example, named Ken are more likely to live in Kentucky, a state here in the United States, than would be predicted by chance. And again, our careers might be more affected by our names than you would realize. And even people marry each other with the same first initial in their name, more likely than they would 
by chance or would be expected by chance to marry people with their same first name letter. So we see that we're affected by all sorts of things, even to who we marry, which again, if you ask someone why you married someone, I doubt that their name started with the same initial as my name would at all cross their mind, but it can have this impact. It can have an influence um, that we might not be aware of. Um, the last part of the book, again, there's those three time zones, talks about the future and how the future can affect or the future part of our unconscious can affect how we act. And a big part of that was looking at goals and how our goals or our intentions can affect how we think or feel in the moment or what we choose to do. And as he mentions in the book, something that we have to be aware of is that we are all very good at coming up with reasons for why we do what we do or don't do what we do, rationalizations, as we call it. Um, so, for example, if you are uh, someone who has an issue with drinking, we know that the brain, or you, however you want to look at it, but we are very good at coming up with reasons why we should drink, well, one more time. You know, the people will say, well, it's a Sunday anyway, and I'd rather start on a Monday. So that, to me, means, why don't I start tomorrow, tonight, let me enjoy a drink. Or, I'd rather start on the first of the month, and it's the 28th, let me really enjoy these next few days, and then I'll never drink again. And we'll come up with a reason, a rationalization to explain almost anything we want to do or don't want to do. And because of that, we have to be aware that we can do things to try to counter this, to try to make it more likely that we succeed in achieving our goals. But what we can do is actually use our unconscious to help us in this fact. So one thing that can help is having routines and habits. In a way, basically, you want to make our goals almost unconscious or that environmental cues will trigger our goal. So if you tell yourself, for example, when I get to my car after work, I'm, well, first of all, you can put a gym bag, let's say, in your car. When I get to my car after work and I see it after work, I'm going to grab the gym bag and put it in my front seat and drive straight to the gym. And if you tell yourself this, it can make it more likely that you will do that thing, something that a concept that's been called implementation intentions which can help us be more likely to do things, which means that we think of the when, where, and how of what we are going to do. So when I get to my car in the parking lot, I'm going to take the gym bag out of the trunk and put it in my front seat, and I'm going to drive straight to the gym. Telling ourselves this can actually make it more likely that we do that thing. But also having routines and habits makes it so that we are more likely to do these things unconsciously. And even becoming focused on our goal by making ourselves almost get obsessed with it, meaning you think about it a lot, makes it more likely that you achieve your goals. Uh, for example, for me, two uh, goals that I have, let's say one, one is daily and one is weekly, one of them is to do 10,000 steps every day to be more active, to at least do that. And the other is, of course, I read a book a week, which I get to talk about on this show. And I am always aware of both of those goals, if you ask me at any given time, I will probably be able to tell you how many steps I have left in that day and how many pages I have left in the book I have to read for that week. So right now I've already done my 10,000 steps for today and I finished last week's book, which I'm talking about now, but I have to read the new book, which has about 250 something pages that I'll be starting tonight. But if you ask me on Thursday, I'll probably be able to give you an answer of where I'm at then too. And so I've realized that I've in a way become so obsessed with the goals that they're always there. 
working, even if I'm not consciously thinking of them, I have some awareness. And this is where our unconscious can actually help us because our unconscious is in a way always working, even when you're asleep, which is why when you dream, we can say this is your unconscious at work, sometimes working through problems, looking at things, uh, looking at things you maybe have left unresolved, whatever the case might be, but our unconscious doesn't sleep. Even when we sleep, it is still going. And so we can actually use our unconscious to help us gain more self-control. And what they found in doing research that people with people who are better with self-control is that it's not that they use more quote-unquote willpower, that they're constantly making the tough decisions, but actually what they do is they use less willpower because they create situations, they create environments, and they use their unconscious in a way that helps them, that works with them rather than against them. They use environmental cues or they use routines and habits to help them out. And of course, forming the routine and the habit in the first place is difficult and it's not easy. But once we do that, it becomes a lot easier. And sometimes to me, actually, when looking at the, un the conscious, it's almost like you want to take the thought out of things. And I talked about uh, Ulysses Pacts, I think is what they're called, where you kind of set up things in a way where you won't have to think about it or in a way it'll be out of your control. So you tell someone, hey, at six in the morning, come to my room and wake me up because I have to go for a run no matter what and make sure I don't go back to sleep. So you're letting someone else in a way have control or something else have the control because you know you consciously might wake up at six in the morning and say, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. And again, the rationalizations kick in. You know what? Sleep is even more important than anything. And if I don't sleep enough, I'm going to be tired all day. And that's not good for my body. So in a way, sleeping might even be better than for me to go for a run. So let me sleep another hour before work and I'll have a better day. And we go back to sleep. We know that our conscious mind in that moment might trick us into staying in bed. And so we might need some help from the outside to help us. So what they found is actually people who have more self-control don't necessarily have more willpower and every moment are so good at making the right decision, but they set themselves up for success by using routine, using habit, using environmental cues to help them uh, make better choices or to actually in a way feel like they almost have, don't have to make a choice. It becomes so routine and automatic. And the author shares his own story of how he kept forgetting to give a book back to his colleague and he had forgotten for days and days or I don't know how long actually exactly, but, and this uh, colleague kept saying, I really need this book to do some research I'm doing. So that night he told himself, when I go home, I'm going to go straight to my, I forgot, I think it was in his bedroom, go to my bedroom and I'm putting this book in my briefcase. And he said, when he got home that day, in a way that felt almost unconscious, he walked towards his bedroom and it was only then that he realized why he was going there and he still had his briefcase in his hand. So he opened it up, put the book and then the problem was solved. So we see that we actually can use our unconscious in ways that can benefit us. And that's again, as I was saying, one of the ideas in this book is that first having that humility that we often are not aware of what things are affecting us at any given time. And there's so many things, you're never gonna know all of them, but we have to accept this with humility that we have less control and even in a way less free will or awareness of exactly what we, why we do what we do or why we think what we think and why we feel what we feel. And having that awareness first is good, but also we can start to actually become aware of some of the things that are affecting us, get more in touch with that and understand that better. And in that way have more free will 
or control over our lives by having that awareness. Uh, so I highly recommend this book. I had some people on Instagram asking me if it was worth reading compared to some other books. And I really felt like it was very comprehensive, talked about so much different research. A lot of it I'd seen in other books, but many of the studies he talked about I hadn't heard of or read about before, and he presented it in a really good way. So I'd recommend this book, Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do by Jonathan Barg. Um, and the book of the weekend for this week that I'll talk about on Monday is The Disordered Mind by Eric Kandel. All right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, on a lot of Monday night shows or before the show, on Instagram I'll post a, a poll or a question to ask people what I should talk about on the show tonight. And thank you to everyone who sends their responses. Of course, I can't do um, all of them. I can only usually do maybe one or two at the most on a show because I do the book review first. Uh, but thank you to everyone who sends those questions and suggestions for things for me to talk about. I do keep them also to keep them in mind for future shows as well. But one question that was asked tonight that I wanted to talk about for this last segment is the issue or idea of vulnerability. And that's an idea you've heard me talk about a lot on the show and Many people in relationship uh, experts or advice on relationships will talk about this. And Brené Brown is very well known for her research and several books that she's written on this topic of vulnerability. Uh, so I did want to talk about it a little bit tonight. So what does it mean to be vulnerable? In essence, being vulnerable means that we are creating a situation or sharing something that actually allows for you to be harmed or maybe taken advantage of or attacked or you're showing some kind of weakness, showing some kind of openness, fragility, being fragile uh, in the presence of someone else. And for most people, this can be a very difficult thing to do. Most people will, will resist it and will not want to show this to anyone, to show weakness to show uh, the possibility of being harmed. And even, I, I don't like using that term weakness because it implies that being vulnerable is being weak, which is not the case. Because actually being vulnerable takes a lot of courage. It takes bravery to be vulnerable in front of someone else. So yes, you are showing your uh, maybe weaker side, or maybe you're showing what we can call your insecurities or sensitivities or your pain. But it doesn't mean that being vulnerable at all is being weak. To me, it is a very courageous thing to do. It takes courage. It takes bravery. It takes trust. It takes faith in the other person and trust in the other person and hope that they won't take advantage of it or use it in a negative way. And that's one thing that many people worry, is that if I show my weaknesses, if I show my weak spots and sensitivities, someone is going to use that against me or they'll know how to, in essence, defeat me or win against me. And this itself shows one aspect of how many people look at relationships, which is that it's actually me versus my partner, whether that's friendship, but even in romantic relationships, it's me against you. And when we have this mind frame or mindset to begin with, we're in a lot of trouble. 
Um, this is going to be the case with everything from how much love you show because you're always looking at how much am I getting, how much am I giving. Any type of argument you have, it's about winning rather than winning together and coming to some truth together. And then, of course, when it comes to openness and being vulnerable, uh, you're going to hold back because I'm not going to show my weaknesses because that could be used against me. If I show my insecurities, the person will know just how to hurt me. So unfortunately, some people enter relationships with this mindset about relationships that it's not about love and connection and support, but it's actually in a way me against you. The trust isn't there. So to be vulnerable, there does have to be a level of trust. And so I'll mention I'm here talking about vulnerability and how great it is, but that doesn't mean that we are completely vulnerable to everyone in every situation all the time from the beginning. That doesn't make sense. Vulnerability and trust, in a way, go hand in hand. The more we get to know someone and the more uh, we start to trust them by becoming closer to them, the more we can be open and vulnerable with them. And in a way, these things happen hand in hand. You take a little bit of risk and show them a little bit of vulnerability and based on how they respond that'll either create or cultivate more trust and connection or it'll make it not so if you don't feel they respond in a way you like it won't create more trust and connection and of course now you will be more comfortable either being more vulnerable with them or you won't at all and you might become even less vulnerable or you might end the relationship or at least become much more closed off to that person so trust and vulnerability go hand in hand and they're built together. The more I take, uh, the more I open up to you and the more you respond positively, the more I will open up to you. But again, even that first step of being vulnerable in a minor way, or let's say in a smaller way, takes some level of risk. I have to be willing to risk that you won't hurt me or you won't take advantage of my vulnerability or make me feel bad or use it against me in some other way in the future. I have to take some level of risk. And that's always going to be there. G being genuinely vulnerable will always feel a little bit risky. It's not going to feel completely safe. If you're waiting for it to feel completely safe to be vulnerable, then you're never going to be vulnerable. And again, this relates to trust. If you're waiting to feel 100% sure that you can trust someone no matter what, or that they will never hurt you, or they'll never leave you, or cheat on you, or any of those kinds of things. If you're waiting for 100%, you're never going to get there. And what you're going to choose is to not get that close to anyone, or to have a relationship, or to take that risk of getting close. So if we're waiting for it to feel totally okay, you're never going to get there. So we have to take a risk to be vulnerable. I'm going to show you something I'm insecure about, or my pain, or things I don't feel good about myself. And that definitely is a risk. But the benefit of that risk, of course, there has to be a benefit or else there's no reason to risk something. The benefit of that risk is that we can create a feeling of closeness and intimacy that is impossible without that vulnerability. And that connection and that intimacy is really what gives relationships value. It's what makes them meaningful. It's what makes them worth something or worth more when you have that connection and intimacy. And again, you need that vulnerability to get that intimacy. So the more you risk in being vulnerable over time as you get to know someone, as they show you that they're worthy of uh, your trust and worthy of you being vulnerable to them and respond in a way that you like and love and feel good about, the more you're willing to risk, the more you can get. Because 
the more we show someone ourselves and they love that, they love who we really are at our core, the deeper parts, the parts that aren't so pretty, the parts we don't feel good about, the more you show someone those parts of yourself and they respond in a positive way and show you they love you, not just despite these things, but even because of those things that maybe you don't even like about yourself or don't feel good about, this is when we really feel love and we feel loved. That's what it means to feel loved, is that someone loves me, all of me, all of who I am. The good, the bad, the ugly, the parts even maybe I don't like. Or they see my flaws, but love me still. They see the things I do wrong or the mistakes I make, but they still love me. That's when you really feel loved. And so you're not going to feel truly loved until you show yourself fully. But again, there's no risk, there's no guarantee that the person will A, love you for who you are, that's a risk, or B, will respond in a way that's going to feel good to you. And you are opening yourself up to get hurt. So there is that risk. And we can use a gambling analogy, and although gambling may be seen as something kind of negative, but the analogy to me fits in that the more you're willing to risk, the more you can get back. But the less you're willing to risk, the less you're going to get back. So if you play it safe, you can only get a safe result back, something small. But if you're willing to take more of a risk, there's more you can get in return. So the same thing happens in our relationships. If you're not willing to risk much, you can have a relationship. It's just not going to be very good or the reward of the relationship won't be much because it's going to stay at a surface level. It won't get very deep. But if you are willing to take those risks to be open, and of course it has to be both sides, vulnerability doesn't work if only one person is being vulnerable and the other person is not. Uh, that, in essence, would be something like a therapy and client relationship where one person comes in, shares their feelings, their thoughts, their insecurities, uh, the pains from their past, and the other person doesn't share anything. They can feel a certain type of closeness, but not a true, genuine connection that you have, let's say, in a romantic relationship. It has to go both ways. So both partners have to be willing to take that risk to be vulnerable in order for there to be a truly deep genuine, romantic, loving relationship between, between two people. And so we have to ask ourselves how willing we are to take those risks or how open we have been. We all would like to come off as perfect and strong and not having any problems and not having any issues. And unfortunately, too often this is reinforced to be perfect, to be always happy, to not show weakness, to not show flaws, to not say we made a mistake. But all of these things, one, are not true and not natural or human. We all have imperfections. We all make mistakes. We all have flaws. We all have pain and experience pain. No one is a superhero who never gets hurt. They're not true. And also when we never show these sides or when we pretend that we never have any of these vulnerabilities or weaknesses, we don't get close to anyone. Everyone stays at a distance. And so the risk we also take in being vulnerable is that if I show you my true colors completely, when you love or reject that, it's going to hurt more deeply. So again, this is another part or element of the risk of vulnerability. Sometimes people will talk about how we hide our true selves because we want to be liked. And I think that's true. Of course, it's very much true. We try to be something or someone we think people will like, get approval in our real relationships and social media, whatever it might be. 
But another side of this that I think sometimes is ignored is another reason why we wear masks or another reason why we act like we're someone else is because we're afraid that if we show who we truly are, this then opens us up to that risk of being rejected or feeling unloved for who we are actually. Because even if they reject my mask, at least they're rejecting my mask, not actually me, even if it still feels like rejection. But if someone rejects the true me, when I show all of myself, that's an even bigger risk. And that cut and that hurt is going to be even more deep. So this is why I say that vulnerability is not at all about weakness, that to be vulnerable actually takes a lot of courage. Someone who is vulnerable with their loved ones, when they're trying to get close to someone, they're being brave and courageous. They are not being weak. They're saying, I'm going to start to show you all of me so that you can either choose to be with me and love all of me or not. But I only want to be in a relationship that's all of me and all of you. I don't want to be in a relationship where there's masks and we're pretending to be someone we are not. That's not going to be true love and that's not what I want. So here's to everyone out there hopefully willing to take those risks, to take that risk to be vulnerable, to show to your partner and show to your loved ones not just the pretty parts and not just the parts that are going to look good to others or that we're so proud of, but the parts that maybe are hard for you to love or the parts you don't feel good about. And I hope you realize that if you want to be close to someone, the only thing that will allow for you to really get close at the deepest level is for both of you to be vulnerable with one another, to show that pain, to show the insecurities, the parts that don't feel good. And then when someone loves that and loves all of you, that's love at its deepest form in the most beautiful way, where two people love each other fully, where two people can be open with each other fully, not be afraid to show what they think or feel or what they're going through. That's what true love really is all about and hopefully what we are seeking. So thank you uh, to the listener who sent that question about being vulnerable. I think it's so important for us to, to think about that and be aware of this in our relationships and again to realize it's always going to feel like a risk if you're waiting for the day that taking that step is going to feel 100 percent safe you're never going to take it we have to have some faith that the person will respond in a way and that we'll be able to handle whatever it is that they respond or however they respond and also some trust in that person some basic trust that they will respond in a way that we'll feel good about or at least give them that benefit of the doubt so take that risk as I've said before in recent shows, don't let the fear win and hide yourself and not be vulnerable. Take that risk in being vulnerable to those around you and especially in your romantic relationships. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is The Disordered Mind by Eric Kandel. The Disordered Mind, What Unusual Brains Tell Us About Ourselves. Okay, again, a big thank you to everyone who responded on Instagram with your questions. I'll keep them in mind for future shows. Thank you, everyone who is listening out there, and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.